It's time to call our shots. On today's episode, we begin with our Adam Gase Award nominations. We then give our NFL Divisional Round synopsis. We have an excellent slate of conference championship games. We preview everything you need to know about these matchups. We then pass it over to some NHL coverage where we introduce a new segment, Puck Me, for the most embarrassing hockey moment of the week. We give you a standings update our weekly rewind, and some player spotlights. Also, we want to thank the tremendous CMS listeners. We crushed it last week and had the most downloads we've ever had. But I'll stop talking now. Roll the intro. Making their way to the ring. The reigning, defending, podcast champs. Calling my shots. We're back and better than ever. Just want to start out today's episode by thanking the great CMS listeners. Last week's episode did tremendous. We've seen our viewership increase, so we're excited about it, and we're here to pump out more content. We're going to keep you updated with the NHL because that season is in full swing now. Zach, what's going on? What do you think about the sports world this weekend? And how's it going? Kind of interesting. You know, we're shifting gears with college football season over and moving in deep into the NFL playoffs and the start of hockey. So pretty good time to be a sports fan, unless you're a Pittsburgh sports fan. But, you know, everything's good. Penguins are off to a slow start, but I still like our chances. Got a revamped defense. It's a good time to be a Penguins fan. That's right. Well, we got an action-packed show for you here today, but before we get started, I do want to make one note. We lost a good baseball player today. Don Sutton has died today. Uh, He's the pride of Cleo, Alabama. He didn't quite make Dalton and I's uh, pitcher list from a few weeks ago, but he was a pretty good candidate. He won 324 ball games, and he's a Hall of Famer. Played 22 years in the show and uh, from 1966 to 88, and um, got his number retired by the Dodgers, which is a pretty deep historical franchise. So lost a good one today in Don Sutton. Absolutely. When you have a franchise that has pitchers like Kershaw, Koufax, if you get your number retired by them, you obviously did something great. And he was definitely on my list to consider. Didn't quite make it, like Zach said, but... Yeah, we send our condolences. I also would like to say I found out some interesting news about Zach that he admitted to me. You know, since he wants to start out the show by ripping on Pittsburgh, I would like to let the listeners know that Zach is a diehard CrossFit fan. I think it's pretty fitting. You can tell just by his sports takes that he's a big CrossFit guy. So, Well, you know, I was uh, in terrible shape at the end of 2020, and I did CrossFit a few years ago. And so uh, we're just trying to do a little something to better ourselves. Excuse me for trying to improve myself, Mr. Mr. Aho, but um, real men lift weights. I'll say this people can laugh at CrossFit all they want, but it's weightlifting combined with gymnastics combined with cardio. And uh, that's a good ass kicking no matter what you want to do or what you want to call it. So do you wear compression shorts and a headband while you're doing CrossFit? Do you take the it to that ba- level? <laughs> the headband and the sweatpants and the sweatbands have not come in yet. I'm hoping any day they're coming in from FedEx, but we're also going to get a, like a little mini uh, Richard Simmons afro we're going to wear. And one and two and and three. 
All right, if this episode gets 100 downloads, Zach has to post that on the Calling My Shots Twitter <laughs> of him doing the dance while he's at CrossFit. I will 100% do it. If this episode gets to 100 downloads. Share it with a friend. Let's make this happen. I'm dying to see it. <laughs> so, Zach, let's start out with our favorite segment and your favorite segment. We have the Adam Gase Award, otherwise known as the AGA. Zach, who do you have the privilege this week of nominating for an AGA crown? Well, you know, I kind of went hard on Arthur Smith last week from Tennessee, but I I thought that uh, there were really no deserving candidates out of the NFL. But luckily for us, Jeremy Pruitt is the winner of the AG award this week because he was fired from Tennessee yesterday. Jeremy Pruitt went 16 and 19 in three years. He did have a bowl win at Tennessee. He won his last six games of 19 and his first two games of this year. So technically, there was a week in there that Tennessee had the longest win streak in in the country but boy it came crashing down rumors of over 50 level one and level two recruiting violations which are the big boys which are the ones you do not want there's rumors of recruits getting mcdonald sacks full of cash oh the memes are going to be all over the place and the they, they did back they I mean, didn't gotta, try to hide it. <laughs> I've never heard of a coach paying recruits through McDonald's bags. That's that's an all-time move. I'll give them that. Well, yes. And Dalton, are you familiar with what a bag man is? It is essentially no. what it sounds like. It's a guy who brings a bag full of money. If you ever see a recruit saying, I'm going to announce on this day, and either it's delayed by an hour or they push it back to another day, that's because somebody has come in there with a big box of cash and has changed this young man's mind. But here's my real reason for giving Jeremy Pruitt this award. And yes, he did it. He got fired with no buyout because they had cause. But here's my reason. Jeremy Pruitt was 21st in recruiting in 2018, 13th and 19, 10th and 20, and 15th and 21. He has had top 20 recruiting classes, and they never won anything. Say what you want to. Hugh Freeze won a Sugar Bowl at Ole Miss doing it. So Tennessee didn't win anything. He is a prime deserve of this award this week. Does your hate for Tennessee run vicariously through your fandom for Lane Kiffin? Just curious, just because the last two awards have been for Tennessee coaches. And I'm not saying I disagree. Jeremy Pruitt is a very worthy nomination, especially with his abysmal performances with the recruiting classes that he has. But I'm just curious about that. It may sound that way, but uh, realistically, I didn't even know that until you just brought that up. This is just a coincidence. I have no ill will towards Tennessee. Honestly, really and truly, I've cheered for him for a long time because of my disdain for the University of Georgia in the East. I mean, let's be real. In football, South Carolina, Vandy, and uh, Kentucky were really never relevant. You always had the big three of Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida. And I just always hated Georgia, so I always pulled for Tennessee and Florida. I have no ill will towards the Volunteers. What about the Spurrier era where they won 11 games three years in a row? For sure. But you, but I'm talking about when I was growing up in my formative, oh, yeah. formative years when uh, I think South Carolina had an O. An 11 season under Lou Holtz. So there was a time when there were just three big boys in the East. So what does this say about Tennessee's program that, you know, Jeremy Pruitt got fired the way that he did and the fact that they haven't been able to, you know, keep a head coach there? Because going into the season, everyone was hyping up Jeremy Pruitt. Saw a lot of things from Vols fans saying they're going to win the East all around. But is it more 
of the program faltering or is it just that their athletic director sucks? I mean, what do you think all this is stemming from? Well, first of all, like you just said, there was a lot of high expectations this year because again, they had a good defense coming back. They had a quarterback who was coming back. They had won the last six games of the last season. There was a lot of high expectations there. And the athletic director route, I don't think you can go there because it is actually Philip Fulmer who won a national championship in 1998 as the coach. But Rumors that he's on his way out. But, um, you know, I think it's more along the lines of that they have been down for the past seven or eight years and they wanted to get up so fast that, hey, we're not even going to hide this. We're going to try to go out and get as much good players as we can. Here's the thing, Dalton. Alabama, Georgia to Vanderbilt, they all pay these players. It is the worst kept secret in the world. But you still can't get sloppy about it. You still have to make an attempt to be discreet about it. Yeah. I mean, Nick Saban probably has a guy working directly from the mafia as the money man to recruit these players. Alabama has what's called the Alabama Championship Fund that people donate directly (laughs) into. And nobody knows what that money goes for. But I think we've all got a good idea. Yeah, that's a good point. So for my nomination this week, Zach, I am nominating Kevin Stefanski. Now, hear me out. He had a tremendous year overall, and he is a coach of the year candidate. And I'm not trying to discount what he did for the Browns franchise, bringing them back to playoffs, making them relevant again, when clearly other coaches had not been able to do it and for how he kind of transformed Baker Mayfield. But the loss against the Chiefs, it's hard not to pin on Stefanski in some ways. So there was two terrible decisions that I felt like he made that got him on this nomination. One was when the Browns were trailing the Chiefs late in the fourth quarter, 22-17, to 17, Stefanski challenged Tyreek Hill's catch, which if you went back and watched the replay, it was very obvious that Tyreek Hill caught the ball. And then the Browns end up losing a timeout, which at the time of the game, losing a timeout is critical if they needed to you know, call a timeout to stop the clock. And then another one happened when they were trailing by five, about four minutes left in the game. They were facing a fourth and nine from Cleveland's 29-yard line. And Zach, you know I'm an analytics guy, so I really question this move. And I think a lot of it could be due to his nerves, it being the first time he's ever been a head coach in a playoff game. But anyway, at the 29-yard line, they're facing a fourth and nine. Stefanski elects to punt the ball, which ultimately ended up costing the Browns the game. Because here's the thing. Even if Kansas City takes over at Cleveland's 29-yard line and the Browns were to stop them and the Chiefs were to kick a field goal, it would still have been an eight-point game. So I really don't understand the decision to not go for it, especially, and I know that, you know, you can make the argument that Chad Henney was in the game, but still you have one of the best play callers with Eric Benamy behind there. And then you have Andy Reid, who will go for it in almost every situation. You don't want to give the Chiefs the ball back on offense. And I feel like the decision to not go for it definitely cost them the game. Overall, I just feel like the analytics tell you to go for it there, especially because even if Kansas City takes over and kicks a field goal, you're still only down by eight. So I just don't understand the risk-reward decision that he made there. I understand. And yes, on paper, that does sound good. But I have a problem with this for a couple of reasons. The catch that Tyreek Hill made, yes, he clearly caught it. But he had that ball on his hip as he was spinning down. And that ball came decently close. It was very hard to see that. 
I will say that I think that they found out that they missed that challenge a couple of plays earlier, that they did not challenge, and so he was not taking a chance. He threw that flag. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. I understand that that's tough, but you're talking about a guy who has, number one, who has clearly defined as the powerhouse of the AFC North, the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> no. That's, but, that's but, a stretch. A big but he has elevated this team. They got their first playoff win in a long time. I think they'll only get better. Baker's only going to get better. And let's be honest, if they score, if Sorensen does not force that fumble in the first half as the guy got to the goal line and got a touchback for Kansas City, we could be talking about the Browns being in this AFC Championship game. Oh, and let me just say that if they would have dropped that fourth and short pass, Andy Reid would have been the AGA this week. Yeah, but... That's the difference, and you bring up a good point. Look, I'm not trying to discount anything that Kevin Stefanski has done this year. I agree that he probably should win the Coach of the Year award and that he's elevated that franchise to heights they haven't seen since you know the Jim Brown era. But I do think that the decision to not go for it on fourth and nine was reason enough to give him an Adam Gase Award nomination just because of the consequences that it had in the game. And especially given the fact that even if Kansas City takes over at the 29-yard line and hypothetically you stop them, still only an eight-point game. And yes, you can say that everyone would have torched Andy Reid if they didn't do it, but Andy Reid is a coach that trusts his gut and is a seasoned veteran, didn't want to give Baker Mayfield the ball back. And the fact that they called a pass on fourth and one and caught everyone off guard just shows that Andy Reid's thinking, you know, five steps ahead of any other NFL head coach right Maybe, maybe. But I got to bring this up. You uh, accused me of nominating Jeremy Pruitt just because I disliked the state of Tennessee for some reason. So obviously (laughs) you nominating the Cleveland Browns coach does not really look good for your case there. You bring up a good point, but I feel like my analysis from it hopefully the viewers will be able to resonate with it and see that even though i am a biased Steelers fan i do make some sense with this nomination okay i understood understood so let's kick it over to some of the best storylines going on right now in the nfl we have urban meyer being named the jacksonville jaguars head coach zach what are your thoughts on this you know this is kind of weird he swore off football then he came back to ohio state swore off football again after he left ohio state on weird terms you know he says he's gonna keep his health as a concern but i just i don't know i he could he be successful absolutely he's never coached in the pros at all in any capacity he's always been on the collegiate level so it's going to be a little bit of adjustment you know we've seen with Nick Saban and uh, some of these guys just because you're an all-world CAA coach does not mean you'll be good at all in the NFL so it'll be interesting I think that he loves success and he's success driven so he'll have a decent shot but I just I don't know yeah the whole argument about college coaches not being able to perform well in the NFL I think is definitely over-exemplified because if you look at Pete Carroll, for example, he came from Stanford and he is one of the best coaches in the NFL. Jim Harbaugh, I think he had more success in the NFL than he ever did in college. It really just depends on the coach. You have to be able to modify your coaching style to be successful in the NFL from college. It's going to be interesting. The fact that the Jaguars have the number one overall pick I think is a huge reason why they decided to get with Urban Meyer as a head coach. But do you think he takes Justin Fields or is it pretty dead set the Jags are taking Lawrence? <laughs> That'd be pretty wild. No, I think that he's going to take Lawrence. But, you know, as you just brought that pick up, that would be interesting if they did not take Lawrence with the first pick. 
Yeah. If the Jags decide to draft Justin Fields and they brought Urban Meyer on as their head coach, you know, they were already thinking about this long before everyone else and everyone in sports media would get it wrong. So we'll see. Yeah, true, true. So I do want to briefly discuss Eric Binemi. I know we just talked about him on the AGA and his genius play call to ice the game over the Browns. Zach, what are your thoughts on him? First of all, not having a head coaching job yet, because I think he has been deprived of a head coaching opportunity. You can contribute a lot of Patrick Mahomes' success to his play calling and his ability to develop quarterbacks. I know he's rumored to go to the Texans, but overall, I just think it's a damn shame that he doesn't have a head coaching position. The Chiefs offense has been prolific for three or four years now under his tenure, and the NFL is an offensive-oriented league. The fact that no one's taken a shot on him is really surprising to me. You know, I agree. I'm more impressed now with him after Chad Henney came in there the other day and played well and won that game than I was before because you could obviously just push it off to Patrick Mahomes being Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill having all this speed, blah, blah, blah. But it showed that his system is a really good system, and I think he, I think he deserves a shot. Do you think he has a good chance to get the Texans job? And is that even a job that he should take? Because if Watson leaves, I mean, the the franchise is going to be kind of in turmoil. You know, it's hard to say. I think first and foremost, they're going to need to, especially if Deshaun Watson's gone, let's just blow it up. Let's load up. Let's you got to get rid of J.J. Watt. You could probably get a good pick for him as crazy as it sounds. But this is a business. We need to blow this thing up and we need to get a bunch of draft picks and a bunch of good, young, cheap players. Let's just be honest. They're not beating Indianapolis and they're not beating Tennessee anytime soon. So they've got some work to do. Yeah, absolutely. So the Los Angeles Chargers just announced that they hired Brandon Staley as their head coach. This is a very unknown hire to me. I really don't know if it's going to do well. I know he had some success when he was the defensive coordinator at Los Angeles, but the Rams, not the Chargers. (laughs) I don't know about this move. And the Chargers, let's be honest, have not had the best ability in selecting head coaches. So out of all the moves I've seen so far, this one is the biggest question. Yeah, I didn't really understand this. He's only been in the NFL for four years. He was the linebackers coach for the Bears in 17 and 18, the um, linebackers coach for the Broncos in 19, and the defensive coordinator for the Rams last year. So don't get me wrong, all teams that are always known for good defense, and they had good defenses those years. I don't really get it. Yes, the Rams had the number one defense this year, but I mean, they were pretty good before he stepped into that role. To me, this sounds like a desperate attempt by little brother, the Chargers, to leech off of big brother, the Rams. Hey, we're going to grab somebody from them and see if they can help us. He might crush it. The Chargers were ninth in defense this year, total defense. So it's not like they were giving up 800 yards a game. So We'll see. I, you know, I figured with Justin Herbert and some of those young offensive talented guys that they would bring in a young Lincoln Riley-ish move with, you know, a young offensive guru, but they went the other way. So we'll just have to see how it works out. Yeah, because they have Justin Herbert, who is looking like a solid franchise quarterback, it just baffles me that they're not going to bring an offensive mind in to develop him. I thought Eric Bienemy would have been a perfect hire for the Chargers, but... We'll see what happens. I'm very skeptical of the decision, but who knows? So next we have the New York Jets hiring Robert Sala as their head coach. This to me actually is a great hire. The Jets are at their best when they have a defensive head coach. We saw it during the Rex Ryan days. The Jets have always been a defensive-minded football team, and I think this is a tremendous hire here. 
We'll see. They're going to need to get a good offensive coordinator, but Salah's deserved a head coaching position for a while now with what he's done with that 49ers defense. I think this is a great hire. This is the best move that the Jets have done in quite a while as a franchise. Dude has been good with defenses everywhere he was been. He was with Seattle from 11 to 13 with the Legion of Boom or the inception of the Legion of Boom. Uh, He was also with Jacksonville from 2014 to 2016, also kind of laying the foundation for Saxon Bill and the 49ers defensive coordinator for the last three years. So obviously the dude knows what he's doing, but Jets are near the bottom in every category. He needs to do two things. He needs to get a fantastic offensive coordinator and he needs to get Sam Darnold's confidence back. And I think with those two other things, Soleil is going to take care of the defense. The Jets are going to be all right. It's crazy as that is to say. The defense is going to be fine. Just get Darnold his confidence back and this team could be pretty decent in two or three years. Yeah, completely agree. Soleil has been deserving of a coaching position for a while now. So I'm excited to see how this shakes out. And it's crazy to say, because we have a segment named after a former Jets head coach, that the Jets did something right. Congrats, yeah. Jets. They, they deserve this one. So the Lions are expected to hire Dan Campbell as their next head coach. This is another move that I really don't understand or know how it's going to work out. I know Dan Campbell has had some success with New Orleans, but the Lions did not know how to select head coaches either. I'm still skeptical of it. We'll see. I don't know enough about Dan Campbell to really give my opinion on it, but hopefully it works out. The dude knows the game. He played 10 years in the league, played with the G-Men, the Cowboys, the Lions, and the Saints. And like you said, he's been an assistant head coach for Sean Payton since 2016, which he has seen a lot of success. How much of that is uh, on Sean Payton? Uh, Probably a lot, but, you know, that'll be determined. I'm like you. This is an iffy hire for me, but I'll tell you, I I did read a couple of people today, a lot of guys that would know on some of these sports websites that says this is the ultimate diamond in the rough hire, that uh, this guy, you might not know him, but he could be everything you want him to be. So it'll be interesting. Like you said, the Lions have just kind of been on the struggle bus for a long time. As I've said before, Matthew Stafford is a good quarterback. He's not good enough to get them a Super Bowl, but he's too good of a quarterback to let them have a high draft pick. They're kind of stuck in that purgatory of mediocrity. So uh, this will be interesting to see how lines move forward. Yeah. Only time will tell. They definitely have not had the best luck in selecting head coaches. So it's definitely an unknown. Maybe the fact that he's coached under Sean Payton for as long as he has will save him. But this is another question mark to me. So then we have Josh McDaniels being rumored to coach the Eagles. Do you think this is a real possibility, Zach? I do. I do. He obviously branched out over a decade ago to coach the uh, Denver Broncos. He did lead them to a playoff win with Tim Tebow. I can't remember who they beat. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I, it's actually slipping my memory, too, now yeah. that you bring it up. But uh, I think it's time for him to branch out. Dude's won six Super Bowls with Belichick. Six Super Bowls. So why not give it a spin for your own, own sake? But the thing is, he really makes almost as much money as an offensive coordinator as he does as a head coach. He gets paid $4 million a year as an offensive coordinator. That's ridiculous. That's a lot of money. I can tell Cam Newton what to do for $4 million a year. (laughs) I See, I always thought that McDaniels was staying in New England because he was dead set on taking over the head coaching job after Bill retires. And that's why I still don't know that he's going to go to the Eagles. That was the only thing that really made sense to me why he stuck around as the offensive coordinator for as long as he has. Maybe so, but I'm just still under the old school mindset of you never want to be the guy that replaces the legend. You want to be the guy that replaces the guy that replaces the legend. Everything Josh McDaniels is going to do in New England, if he gets that job, is going to be compared to Belichick. He could win 
a Super Bowl and lose three others, and they'll be like, well, you know, Belichick did this. So it's a tough ask. That's a good point. So then we have the Steelers hiring Matt Canada as their offensive coordinator. So Steelers let go of Randy Fitchner in typical Steelers fashion. He doesn't get fired. They let his contract expire. That's just how the Steelers operate. They don't fire anyone. They let contracts expire. I just think it's interesting that that's how they've operated for as long as they have. This move to me is, he obviously should be an upgrade over Randy Fitchner. But that's also not saying a lot because, you know, Rex Ryan could have coached a better offense than Randy Fitchner. My personal opinion. I've had gripes with him his entire tenure. I know Matt Canada had success in 2016 with Pitt's offense. He actually made Nathan Peterman look like an NFL caliber quarterback. It's pretty impressive. Then they upset Clemson that year. And he also helped James Conner get drafted in the second round by the Steelers. So he has had some success as an offensive coordinator. I just don't know if he's had enough experience in the NFL, but we'll see. I think it's an interesting hire. And overall, I'm satisfied. I've just never really been a huge Matt Canada fan. I mean, obviously his line and resume, he's been to a lot of good colleges and obviously now with the Steelers. But I mean, he's just never really knocked anything out of the park to me. Obviously, he did really good with Nathan Peterman. But, you know, I'm just Pitt's Pitt's offense of 2016 was really good. I think that's like the one area I can look back in his career and be like, okay, if he can replicate that. He'll have success. But. I remember when LSU hired him in 2017, and everybody thought that LSU was just going to finally turn the corner and do kind of what Joe Brady did. And, man, they just kind of flundered out. They just promoted their quarterbacks, Coach. Whoopee. Yeah, time will tell. Like I said, it has to be an upgrade over Fishner. That guy was the worst. So let's move into our divisional round recap. I know we briefly talked about this game earlier, but we had the Browns versus the Chiefs in the AFC. The Chiefs win the game 22-17. to Patrick Mahomes gets hurt, goes into concussion protocol. Hopefully he'll be healthy for the AFC championship. So I know we kind of discussed really what this game came down to, especially with the fourth and dying call to punt the ball to Fansky, but... Overall, I have to say I'm very impressed with Chad Henney, and he came in and had an absolutely legendary performance replacing Patrick Mahomes off the bench. He for sure did. I mean, this game could have gotten away from Kansas City in a hurry, um, especially with Patrick Mahomes. By the way, did you see that? Man, it just looked scary. He pretty much looked like his head was trying to get pulled off his body. You know, like I said, I think that this uh, game really comes down to Higgins fumbling that ball right there before halftime. Uh, Sorensen made a hell of a play on it, knocked it out right before it got to goal line. Man, I I think Cleveland has nothing to hang their head on. Could they have won this game? Absolutely. But man, I mean, this just goes to show you how talented the Chiefs are. Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, some of these guys, and they're going to be a tough out no matter who's a quarterback. Obviously, with Mahomes, they're a different team, but Henny looked good. That one interception was pretty bad on that 50-yard bomb, but but we'll see. I I want and I hope Patrick Mahomes is healthy because I want the Mahomes-Allen showdown that we've all wanted all year. And let's just be real here. The number one and two seed from the AFC are in there. Yeah. Zach, you were right about this. I got to give you your respect. You picked this matchup correctly. I did not. I took the Ravens, who we'll get into in a little bit. But overall, so fair to say, Zach, the Chiefs got lucky to win that game. I think that they definitely lucked out. They easily could have lost. The Browns, I'm giving them more respect the more that I see them. They are an immensely talented team, and they easily could have won that game, but I think their lack of playoff experience was really the difference here. You know, it kind of gives you the wonder of uh, if OBJ would have been healthy, could this have been a better team? Obviously, the ego would have been bigger, but you can't deny the guy's talent. 
Yeah. To be fair, though, OBJ and Baker really don't have a great connection. I know they hit every once in a while on a deep ball, but since OBJ's been to Cleveland, his numbers have diminished every single year. Yeah. So for the next game, we have the Ravens versus Bills. So the Bills win this 17 to 3. They advance to the AFC Championship. This was a bloodbath in the first half. It was a battle of two tremendous defenses overall. The worst part about this game, Zach, was that Justin Tucker missed two field goals. I literally spent almost an entire episode pumping up Justin Tucker and how clutch he is. And then he goes out and doinks two of them. Now, to be fair, the wind in this game played a huge factor in kicking and in passing in general. It was ridiculous. I saw, you know, Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen both miss deep throws because the ball literally moved three feet while it was in the air. So this came down to overall Lamar Jackson not playing great. I got to pin this loss on him. He definitely made some costly turnovers. I definitely hyped up Lamar Jackson before going into the playoffs thinking that, okay, this is the year that he can elevate himself, but I just don't think he's there yet. He definitely won his first playoff game, got that over his shoulders. He's still a really good quarterback. But if he can't develop as a passer and improve his accuracy, the Ravens are going to be plagued for a while. For sure. For sure. And I have said that for weeks on Paul on weeks now on this program. And uh, one thing I also think that needs to be said that you didn't say there, the wind also affected the snaps on these shotgun snaps. Buffalo had a couple on special teams on extra points and field and that field goal. That was a bad snap. Also, Lamar Jackson had a couple snaps go over his head. It's terrible, but man, it's just part of it with the wind. I know that people were blaming the center and yes, some of it does fall on him, but man, when that wind's whipping, it can push that ball around. I got to just tell you, Dalton, and I call this one to a T again. I told you that Tennessee's defense really gave the Ravens trouble, and I thought the Bills' defense was even better, and they would shut them down. And let's just be real here. Josh Allen's stat line may not have been great, 23 completions for 206 yards and one touchdown, but they moved the ball when they needed to move it against the number one defense in the AFC. I just think that uh, Josh Allen played a really good game. Buffalo played a complete football game. And you hate Lamar Jackson got hurt, but – You know, I saw people saying that, oh, the Bills are lucky that Lamar Jackson got hurt. They were already down 14 at that point. I just didn't see them coming back. It sucks, and I hate it, and I hope he gets better and clears through that concussion, but I don't think it would have mattered. Well, the Ravens are also terrible at playing from behind because it completely, you know, behooves their entire game plan, which is run the ball, control time of possession, and play great defense. So that's right. What do you have? So the argument that, you know, being down 14, if Lamar Jackson was in, it would have been a difference. I don't think so. The fact that the Ravens were down by, you know, two touchdowns, at that point, playing from behind is not the Ravens' strong suit, and they were really in a disadvantageous position. Absolutely, and why are the Ravens not a very good team to play from behind? Is because Lamar Jackson struggles in the passing game. Yep. I thought that he had looked better this year in some games, passing the ball. He definitely showed moments. So if he could have played decent as a passer overall or had even mediocre success passing the football, the Ravens had the roster to make a deep run. They're definitely a talented team. You know, best defense in the AFC, like you said. They had tools. I do think that they need another receiver to help Lamar out a little bit. But sure, I mean, you're they right. Actually they, let, they actually let Mark Ingram go today as well. So it looks like they'll be getting some new blood at running back. Yeah, well, they have Dobbins now taking over, so I think they'll be fine yeah. rushing the ball. But I they do need. Put, I was just going to say, I think if you put Josh Allen on the Ravens, they're a Super Bowl favorite. Yeah, that's fair. Lamar Jackson definitely deserves some criticism for this performance. The fact that he won an MVP maybe has hurt him overall because people just have such high expectations. But you're right, it really comes down to the passing attack of the Ravens, and there's really 
no way to beat around the bush about it. That's what it is. That's right. So moving into the NFC, we have the Rams versus the Packers. So the Packers won this game 32 to 18. This was a complete mismatch for the Rams overall. You know, at some point, the defense was going to falter a little bit. I know their secondary is tremendous and they have a great pass rush, but Aaron Rodgers is playing at an all-time great level. I don't think I've ever even seen Aaron Rodgers play this well. And the fact that he just looks so nonchalant while he does it is crazy to me. He's definitely elevated his game, his playoffs, and I definitely doubted the Packers coming in to the playoffs this year. But from what I've seen from them so far, they're a real team. And honestly, they should probably be the Super Bowl favorites at this point. We knew their offense was fantastic. We knew Rodgers and Aaron Jones and Lazard and all these guys were going to score points. We knew that. That defensive front for the Packers was crushing that Los Angeles offensive line on the pass rush. Cam Akers ran for some yards, yes, but Jared Goff didn't really have time to do anything downfield. He completed 21 passes for 174 yards, which is nothing in the NFL for that many attempts and that many completions, but that Packers front four looked really good. If that front four can get that kind of pass rush, they're going to be tough to beat. Yeah. Is it time for the Rams to move on from Jared Goff? Because I personally think that it is. Goff, to me, is a very mediocre quarterback. He's more of a system quarterback to me than he is a franchise guy, so... I wouldn't be surprised to see the Rams move on, and I think they should. Maybe so, but let's not forget here that uh, he did do this with a broken thumb, so it's not like he was 100% healthy, and he did not play bad. He just didn't play good. He won that game last week in that divisional round, but uh, he just couldn't quite elevate them this week. So but we saw like whenever he played the Patriots in the Super Bowl. He also had a very similar performance where he couldn't hardly complete a pass. I think they put up, what, six points in that Super Bowl? I think that he's just more of a system quarterback, and you put any decent quarterback in McVay's system, I think they'll have similar success to Jared Goff. Maybe so, but you're sitting there talking about Lamar Jackson, and then, I mean, Goff played better than Jackson did. That's fair, but Goff can't rush the ball like Lamar Jackson. Maybe so, but Lamar can't throw it like Jared Goff can. Jared Goff isn't an all-world passer by any means. No, he's not. What I'm saying is is I think that Jared Goff will have a longer career than Potentially. Lamar Jackson. Well, just because we've talked about this before, Lamar Jackson, his throwing techniques are not what you want out of an NFL quarterback. He, he's not sharp enough on some of those passes. And, uh, you know, his legs won't be there forever. Yeah, I still think that the Rams could get a better quarterback than Jared Goff. He's carried more by the system than he is by his talent. That's my personal opinion. That would be an interesting move. It would be a very interesting move. So the battle of the NFC South in the NFL divisional round, we have Tampa Bay Bucks who played the New Orleans Saints. The Bucks won this game 30-20, to and this was another game that I was wrong about. I have to admit it. Drew Brees was the reason that the Saints lost this game. He can't complete a pass longer than 15 yards. And it's really tragic to see him go out the way that he did because Drew Brees is a Hall of Famer, probably the greatest player in New Orleans Saints history, has had tremendous success. So it's pretty gut-wrenching to see him go out like this. But I got to tip my cap to Tom Brady. It is absolutely ridiculous that the guy is 43 years old and he still looks like a top-five quarterback in the league. That throw to Godwin was ridiculous. I don't know how Tom Brady continues to do it year after year. Maybe it's the yoga. Maybe it's the meditation. But Brady has done what no other quarterback in NFL history has had the ability to do. And that is be an incredible passer and really not fall off a cliff even in his lower 40s now. It's ridiculous. The Bucks outplayed the Saints in this game. But 
it all comes back down to how Drew Brees played. Dalton, what is this? 40? No, 4 and 0. Oh, that's what I went this week because I picked this one. And just like you said, I knew that Drew Brees was just not going to be able to carry the bread. Pride comes to football. Hey, I, I, I'm just telling you, I. I mean, I get to go four and zero often, but I did this week. You did, like you, you said. You, you said Drew Brees just man, he just didn't. Uh, you know, Father Time's undefeated. Tom Brady's holding him off. You're right, but more along the lines, I'm impressed because Tom Brady is showing me and proving to you that the pocket passer is always going to be there. I understand if you have limited mobility, you're going to be hemorrhaged. But if you can sling that watermelon around, there's always going to be a spot for you. Yeah. That is a fair point. Tom Brady is, you know, kind of a dying breed in the NFL, but the guy is 43 playing in another NFC championship. You can't deny his success. You really can't. Now, when I say this, I understand having a quarterback with mobility like Russell Wilson is the perfect example. Obviously, his legs can make up for when the passing blocking is not there. He can scramble, make plays, and cover up some other people's shortcomings. That's not debatable. That is 100% not debatable. But when you can sling it like Tom Brady can or like a Peyton Manning could, you don't need to be able to run. Just give him a line, give me some time, and man, he's going to pick you apart. Yeah. Well, that's where Tom Brady's always been lethal is just how fast he can get the football out of his hands. He's always been the best at it, and that's why he's had so much success even into his 40s. Does this to you, Zach, prove that it was more Brady than Belichick? Are you willing to make that argument yet? Or, you know, what does this kind of do for Brady's legacy overall? Because to me, I really didn't think the Bucs were going to go this deep. I figured they would probably sneak in as a wild card team. But the fact that, that they have a shot to go to the Super Bowl shows how important Tom Brady was to Bill's success. And people so, people have to people have to acknowledge that. You can't say it was all Bill because look at what Brady's doing with the Buccaneers, a team who hasn't had a lot of success and hasn't made the playoffs in like 10 years. You know, that's a fair argument. That's 100% a fair argument. But I will counter that with saying that Tampa Bay went 7-9 and nine last year with Jameis Winston throwing 30 interceptions. This team had talent. The defense is obviously number one in rushing. They have tons of talent with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Jones back there running the ball. You throw in some additions like an Antonio Brown or a Leonard Fournette. Yeah, this team was going to be successful. Now, does Tom Brady elevate them? Sure, absolutely. They were not going to be as well as if you would have had Chad Henney back there. But, I mean, let's be real here. Tampa Bay has a good roster. Tom Brady did not go to them just for shits and giggles. He went because he knew that they had a good defense, some good receivers, a good offensive line. And, hey, I the, warm, the warm weather helped. For sure. And I understand that. But, you know, to me, I still think it's a half and half because I still think if Cam Newton would have played decent football this year, New England could have been a playoff team. Yeah. And I'm not saying this by any means knocks Bill's legacy. I think to me, it just kind of more solidifies Brady's greatness and just shows. For sure. And just kind of solidifies that, okay, even if Brady had played in a different system or with a different team, he still would have had maybe not the same success, but tremendous. I think maybe so. But let's not forget on all those Patriots teams, what did they always have? A rock solid defense and, that and, a, and a great offensive line and well sure absolutely but they always had rock solid defenses which is what bill belichick learned from parcells when you know when he was parcells defensive coordinator defense is where it starts if you've got a defense and you've got a hall of fame quarterback and a good offensive line you're gonna win you're yeah. gonna win yeah it's football 101 so zach we're getting near the end of the nfl season and it's pretty sad to think about overall 
But let's preview the conference championship games. And let's start in the NFC, since we did the AFC with the divisionals. We have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going to Lambeau, facing the Green Bay Packers. This is a battle of the Bays, which Bay will be superior in this matchup. Should be a great matchup overall. Tampa has a better defense, but the Packers have a better rushing attack and probably better offense overall. What's surprising to me is how well Matt LaFleur has done in the playoffs. When he got hired in Green Bay, people were very skeptical of the decision. And even last year, because they flamed out the way that they did, people were saying, okay, well, LaFleur is really not that great. It's more they have a good team with Aaron Rodgers. But I think that's completely flipped now. LaFleur is really cementing himself as a solid NFL head coach. This is an interesting matchup. The Buccaneers will be able to exploit the Packers secondary so it's really going to come down to whether or not the Packers can get pressure on Tom Brady because the way that beat Tom Brady and you know this as a Eli Manning homer that you have to get pressure on Tom Brady to have success and to be able to beat him so you do know that that 2011 Giants team had the 31st best defense in the league they were the yeah, second worst but defense front, in the but league. but their front four was lethal and they were able to get a lot of pressure on tom brady and that's the reason that they won the game oh no it's not but okay i'll give you that like i've said before peyton manning has two super bowl rings he won one his defense won another eli won two super bowls he played well but it also their front four had a lot to do with the win too because they were able to get a ton of pressure onto tom brady you know with Justin Tuck, Michael Strahan, guys like that. Not gonna, I, I'm not denying that, but I'm just telling you that I would have to check on Nick Foles. But I know in the New England's and Tom Brady's previous five Super Bowls that they have won, Tom Brady outplayed every quarterback every time except against Elisha Manning. I'm not, I'm not discounting Eli's success. You know, he did win those two Super Bowls. But what I am trying to say is that the Packers can't get after Tom Brady and they give him all day to throw. Their secondary is going to get gashed and the Bucs will have a real shot at winning this game. If the no Packers, doubt. If the Packers control time of possession, run the ball well with Aaron Jones and play decent defense, I think, you know, with the weapons that they have on offense and with how well Aaron Rodgers is playing, they should be the favorites here to win the game. I'm picking Green Bay. I've been high on Tampa with all their offensive weapons, but I'm picking Green Bay because of three reasons. Number one, Aaron Rodgers. Number two, the pass rush that they generated against the Rams. But number three, and I think this is the most important, it is going to be so cold in Lambeau. So cold on Sunday. And um, I don't think the Bucks are going to be ready to play in that cold weather. I think it's going to be tough. But let me throw a hypothetical at you, Dalton. Uh, you know, I've thought about this a lot. The Packers have never been a big money spending organization. They've always had decent teams, but they are, you know, they're a smaller market. What could Aaron Rodgers have done if he would have went to the Giants, not the Giants, obviously, if but if he would have went to Jets, you know, the Rams, some of these big market teams with a lot of money that would spend? Because let's be real, if Aaron Rodgers is not on these Packers, they probably don't make the playoffs half of these seasons that they have in his career. That's fair. He has played at a higher level than arguably any other quarterback in history. Now, he may not have the accolades in Super Bowl wins, but he's done this on a smaller market team. Yep. There is no telling what he could have won if he would have played in a big market. Well, a lot of it has to, you know, goes back to Green Bay being owned by its shareholders. So that obviously has a lot to do with it. But you do make an interesting argument. I used to be under the impression that Aaron Rodgers is overrated. 
and that he got way too much media attention. But I've recently switched my position on that. I do think that at times Rogers has had bad attitude problems. I've kind of played him and no doubt. You know, getting, getting into it, getting into it with coaches. So His he definitely, family. yeah, I mean, he, he has to have the right coach with him to really have success. But I do think looking back at, if you look at Mike McCarthy now, just how terrible he has been for the Cowboys so far, you can see Aaron Rodgers' greatness through that. You can see that sure. Rodgers carried McCarthy more than McCarthy carried the Packers. So I, agree. Sure. I don't think Green Bay is the worst situation to be in. I know that they don't always have weapons, but their team now, they have Devontae Adams, Aaron Jones. They have good pieces. They just have never really had a great defense. Yeah, but he's That's been there for 15 years, and this is the right. best team he's ever had. No, all, uh, all their, their, team, their team in 2011 was real. It was. It was. But this is what I'm saying. Uh, and part of the reason this happens is because let's look at what Aaron Rodgers is. He's a hipster. He's kind of a, uh, I'm kind of a better than everybody else. He's not close to his family. He's even had teammates criticize him. And who did he come after? Brett Favre would go up in Lambeau and literally stretch out and people would still carry him through the streets. They just loved him. He was a man of the people. And I think that they, they're always going to be intertwined because they're so different. You've got Favre, who was this gunslinger who was not scared to throw a football through a donut hole, as opposed to Rodgers, who is, as Cal- Colin Cowhart said, he's reluctant at times. But I think that their careers will always be tied together. But all I'm saying is, is that Rodgers... He's had to replace a legend. He's played on these, again, not small market teams, but, you know, not big market teams either with lesser defenses and lesser weapons. I mean, come on, let's be real. How many times has he had Pro Bowl receivers? It's just all I'm saying is, is that Rodgers, for my money, he could be the greatest ever. I can't give him that crown, and here's why. My one gripe with Aaron Rodgers is leadership abilities, and that to me is the big thing that distinguishes him and Tom Brady overall. And that's why I can't say that he's the greatest ever. He's certainly a Hall of Famer, one of the best all time. But as a leader, he just doesn't have the characteristics that some of these all-time greats like Tom Brady and Joe Montana have. Talent-wise, Rodgers is probably the most talented quarterback of all time. But I can't give him that legacy just because of his leadership characteristics and you know, overall, his personality and just candid demeanor, I guess. You could well, another it. thing to think about, too, is that just dawned on me when you were talking about leadership is uh, if he would have played in a market of the magnitude of New York City, you can, again, uh, you're going to say I'm an Eli Homer, but Eli Manning, through all his successes and struggles, handled that cutthroat New York media better than anybody that ever did it. Him and Derek Jeter. Ever. They're always like, oh, come on, just give us, you know, just tell us one little bad thing about your teammate. Never. And I think that Aaron Rodgers, if he would have been in that bigger market, we've obviously seen him clash with teammates before. He would have had a lot more opportunities to go after his teammates and coaches. I'm curious to see if he would have been almost run out of one of those big markets because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Yeah, that's a good point. Honestly, I think that Green Bay has been a good fit for him. But I can't deny his talent. He probably is the most talented quarterback we've ever seen, just with some of the throws that he makes and even his mobility overall. But like I said, when I evaluate who my greatest quarterbacks are of all time, I take every factor, including their leadership abilities, because I think that's huge from the quarterback position. And that's why I can't put him in Montana and Brady status. But he's certainly an all-time great and in my top 10 quarterbacks all time. Okay, fair. So... Next game, let's move into the AFC Championship. We have the Buffalo Bills facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. This is going to be a great matchup, two juggernauts. Honestly, 
I was dumb for not seeing this. I'm admitting this now. I mean, these are the two best teams of the AFC going in. They were the two hottest teams overall. The question is, one, is Patrick Mahomes going to be able to play? Because if Mahomes doesn't play, the Bills win this game, and I think it's pretty easy. I don't think the Chiefs have a shot. But if Mahomes plays, this is going to be a shootout. I can see it being very high scoring. I know that the Bills have a great defense, but they also haven't had to play an offense like Chiefs yet. Obviously, this entire matchup is going to ride on Mahomes' healthiness. But overall, this is going to be a fantastic AFC championship. I'm ecstatic for it. You know, I kind of wish it was in Buffalo to see Bills fans' reaction because even though there was only like 6,700 Bills Mafia at the last game, that stadium was still rocking. Could you imagine a packed Orchard Park AFC championship? It would be absolutely ridiculous in the snow. As a football fan, I would love to see it. But overall, it should be a great game. It's going to be high scoring. If Mahomes is healthy, I would take the Chiefs here. But if Mahomes doesn't play, I think it's pretty obvious Buffalo is going to win. Yeah, you said it. Buffalo has won eight games in a row. Extremely hot. They are a DeAndre Hopkins Hail Mary catch from being 12 wins in a row. So uh, that was their one loss in there. But yeah, Dalton, I'm, I'm taking the Chiefs. Um, as long as Mahomes is healthy, I you know I love Josh Allen. I think the defense is good, but I just don't think you can keep this offense down enough. This is the most... Gosh, we throw this around so much, but this is one of the best offenses in history. They've just got so much talent across the board. It's just going to be too hard. I'm going to take Kansas City. Absolutely. The Tomahawk Chop's going to be in full effect. Well, Dalton, you know what time it is, don't you? It is hockey time. Time to talk some hockey. Ready for it. You know, the Penguins are off to a little bit of a slow start, but the win over the Capitals was a must win. And it was, you know, has me feeling a little bit more confident, but don't worry. I have a rant later on about how terrible of a decision Jim Rutherford made, but we can save that for a little bit later. So we know you out there love the Adam Gates Award. We know that's a crusher. So we've got something similar with the Puck Me Award. And what that's going to be, it's going to be the worst or most embarrassing moment of the week for a player, a coach, or a franchise. So Dalton, what's your first week one Puck Me Award? Puck Me, Mike Babcock is a verbal abuser. That's what former players are calling him. We saw him come out in an interview recently with Pierre Lebrun. And former Detroit Red Wing winger Johan Franzen stated that he's a terrible person and easily the worst I've ever met. He even said that it could have been a cleaner at the arena in Detroit or anybody. He would just lay into people for no reason. The reason why I put him on here, Zach, look, it's no stranger that Mike Babcock has had his issues with players in the past. But players overall, the more, you know, as one player speaks out, the more you start to hear rumblings overall. Mike Babcock just treats his players like absolute dog shit. And the fact that he's still getting a job as an NBC sports announcer is pretty surprising to me, especially with all the news coming out. The only reason that I think that this is embarrassing for him is just because he's literally so ignorant that he can't even notice the effect that he has on people, nor can he even embrace what he's done and apologize for it. He kind of just shrugs it off and then kind of pins it on the other player and is basically like, oh, well, that's why you have a team psychiatrist. Like the psychiatrist should be responsible for telling me if I'm getting into it with players too much. So he just refuses to take any sort of accountability for it. And I just think that it looks embarrassing for him. And especially you see how much success Toronto's having now. A lot of it had to do with his ability to not be able to manage these superstar talents. Cutting into him all the time, showing zero remorse and just being a complete 
douchebag to everyone eventually is going to have consequences. It is. Let me say this. Mike Babcock's been in the league a long time. He first got his NACL coaching debut job in 2002. And let's be honest here. Guys are a lot softer now than they were in those days. That's fair. You can you can talk about bigger, faster, stronger. Yeah, sure. But softer, soft as Charmin, as Kobe Bryant used to say. You got to be careful with guys nowadays. You can't you can't yell at them. You got to pamper them. Or oh, he he yelled at me. Let's be real here. And I'm not trying to sound like an old timer hard ass, but Mike Babcock was growing up and played and coached his formative years of coaching in the I'm going to yell at you and you're going to do better era. And it's just not that way anymore. People are softer. People cry. All this mess. I don't blame him so much as you do for saying that he's just a terrible person. I just think that's the way he's always motivated people. And it just doesn't work as well as it used to. We as society are so much softer now. We just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But Mike Babcock is still a really good coach. I wanted him as the Rangers coach a few years ago, but didn't happen. But I just think that's it's passed him by motivation-wise. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with being a tough coach and laying into guys if it works. But the fact that you have so many people speaking out against him and the fact that, you know, you have guys saying that he's even going to lay into like a Detroit cleaner. That's just a bad look for him personally. I get being a tough coach and I think there's nothing wrong with it. And certainly in his era, it was probably more effective. But if you don't even have the decency to build up a decent relationship with the people cleaning your stadium or just your average working people it just kind of tells me everything I need to know about them. Now that's 100% fair. I'm not going to argue with that at all, but it's just, like you said, he had trouble in Toronto. Think about the players that they have there. They had Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and William. They young, yeah. They had a lot of young superstars, but these young superstars that have probably been pampered and never been yelled at, or maybe not as much, you know, as some of these grinder kids that have just been pampered. And, and when he got there, that's why it just didn't click because they resented him. Yeah, and that's fair. But I do agree. If if you judge a man by seeing how he treats other people that can do nothing for him, and if he treated his people that were of lesser statue, these people that were cleaning the rafters and stuff, if he treated them bad, then yeah, he's a bad person. But who's yeah. to say it's all true? Well, and it's just embarrassing for something like that to come out, especially when it's you know people cleaning your eyes, taking care of your facility. Things of that nature. For and sure, as, for sure. as the season, the season just started. So our content here, we have a little bit less to choose from, but stay tuned. I feel like this segment's going to be great. And Zach, who do you have for your Puck Me Award? So Dalton, I don't know if you saw this video during the week, but they had uh, Andre Burkowski and Pierre-Edouard Belmar, both of the Colorado Avalanche, were doing a press conference about the stadium series that they're going to have at Lake Tahoe. And uh, Pierre-Edouard Belmar was so excited. He was saying that, you know, I've never skated on a lake before. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Woohoo, woohoo. And during the middle of this, Burkowski says, uh, hey, bud, just letting you know that it's not going to be on the lake. It's actually going to be right next to it. And just see, and just see Belmar, just seeing his spirit break. He's like, oh, no, I was so excited. No, no. It was hilarious. I, it's a lighthearted moment, but I just thought it was pretty funny. Go back and watch that video if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Yeah, that's certainly a great nomination. The segment's going to be great. And I'm really, I'm stoked that hockey's back and watching a lot of it. The fact that we have all these rivals playing each other week after week, game after game, has just made for incredible content so far. So in the 56-game season, every game matters. But let's quickly, we're going to quickly give you guys a standings update. We're going to do this weekly. That way you know which teams are hot, 
who is in trouble for missing the playoffs because with it only being 56 games, every game matters. You can't afford to get off to a slow start and then you know make a run midway through the season and still creep back in. This is it. You got to win every single game or as many games as you can right away. And if you go on a cold streak, probably out of the playoffs. That's right. That's right. So just the, like Dalton said, a little standings update. So uh, in the Central, we've got Tampa. Nashville and the Hurricanes all tied at four points apiece at the top. We've got the Capitals leading the East with five points. The Flyers and the Islanders are in second, tied for second with four points. Toronto leads the Great White North with six points. Les Habitants Canadiens and the Flames are right behind them at five points. And out West, Vegas has got the lead with six points. And the Blues and the Wild are tied at second with four. So pretty tight. I mean, obviously, most teams have only played two or three games, but pretty tight. Dalton, you got anything to go on that? Yeah. So, Zach, I still don't understand why you're discounting the Montreal Canadiens the way that you are. I tried to tell you going into the season that they're going to make the playoffs out of the Canadian North Division. They look tremendous so far. And honestly, it reminds me a little bit of 86, you know, with Calgary and Montreal running Canada right now. I dislike the Canadians as a franchise, but I can't deny, you know, how great they've been so far. Carey Price looks amazing. I know Deneau is not an elite number one center, but I think he is an underrated player overall. And Shea Weber is playing some of the best hockey of his career. And the trade with Nashville looks better and better every single year. Another surprise to me is the wild. Cam Talbot's kind of standing on his head right now. He was very shaky for Edmonton last year. So the fact that they've had some early season success has been surprising, especially considering I really didn't think they had a chance at even being decent this year. I know Carey Price is going to play hard, and, and the Canadians are going to be really good in short spurts, but I just don't think that they have enough scoring, as you talked about, to kind of get them through Nick the Suzuki. year. Nick Suzuki's he's shaping up to be an incredible goal scorer. Sure, but Carey Price can only carry him so far. Um, still not completely sold by them yet. Tampa looks pretty good 2 and 0 doesn't look like there's any kind of cup hang over there um the one thing that surprised me was the um you know the blues have, are right there with four points and bennington really hasn't played that well just yet i think if he gets going man they could be a cup contender they can score so yeah. uh now, he let good- in he let in four goals to sharks last night and really looked shaky overall especially for a sharks team that Kind of looks like they're rebuilding a little bit over the hump. So he definitely has not been sharp. But the fact that they're still up there in the standings just shows how much talent they have. And honestly, Tory Krug is surprising me. I thought that that would be a pretty significant downgrade from Trangelo. But he's kind of showing that he's still an elite player and he could fit in quite nice. The Blues. Yeah, yeah. He's ready to be that number one D man there in St. Louis. Also got you a little update in the league leaders in points through this early year. We've got Mitch Marner of the Leafs, John Tavares of the Leafs, Jack Eichel of Buffalo, Taylor Hall of Buffalo, and Thomas Hurdle of the Sharks, all tied at six points apiece. Got some big names in there. Thomas Hurdle toting the bread there in San Jose. You mentioned these elite players from Toronto. One team that we both universally agreed on as being legitimate Stanley Cup favorites are the Maple Leafs. And we see, you know, I think they're 3-0 and right now leading their division. The Maple Leafs are going to be a force this year. They're easily one of the Stanley Cup favorites at this point. For sure. They're obviously, to me, going to be the uh, leader coming out of the Great White North division. But, you know, it's just the same old story as it all has always been with Toronto. Are they going to be able to have enough good goalkeeping to be able to beat some of these good teams? Is the defense going to hold up? They give up a lot of shots. You know, 
they've obviously got the offensive firepower, but can the defense keep up? And that's something that's going to have to be remain to be seen. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So let's give our weekly rewind, and we're going to do this going forward. So to kind of keep you guys all inundated with the NHL. In the Eastern Division, what we see is a complete bloodbath on ice. You have all these rivals, teams that can't stand each other, having to play each other frequently, and it's a super competitive division. We even see teams like the Buffalo Sabres beating Philly 6-1 to one last night, which definitely shocked some people. But overall, and then you have Pittsburgh, who lost their first two games against Philly, but then managed to take down the Capitals, who were on a little bit of a heater to start the season. The Rangers have obviously had some early season success. And then you have the Devils, who no one expected anything out of, but they have arguably one of the most underrated goaltenders in the NHL right now with Mackenzie Blackwood. And the P.K. Subban deal seems to be working out okay. We'll see if they can actually sustain it, but... The Eastern Division so far in week one is everything that we thought it was going to be. Super competitive. You can't take any shifts off. You can't take any games off. And if you do, you're going to miss the playoffs, especially in this division. That's right. Like you said, all every game matters. And one team you didn't mention in there, but two and one is the Islanders. Um, they won their first game against the Rangers. They lost their second game on Saturday, but then they actually just won, uh, you know, the other night and got back to two and one. So yeah, I don't think you can count them out. Barry Trotz has got them playing that good, solid defensive hockey, and they're going to score just enough goals to be relevant. And uh, the defense is going to carry them the rest of the way. Yeah. And so some people had some concerns overall with Boston, but what we're seeing out of them is they are aging some, but Tuka Rask has been on an absolute heater and he's showing why he's still one of the best goaltenders in the NHL. And I know a lot of Bruins fans were concerned going into the season because of you know Rask sitting out for the playoffs last year. There might have been some animosity towards him, but overall he's really solidifying why he's an elite goaltender and he is a huge reason the Bruins have had as much success as they have. That's right. The talent has never been Tuka Rask's problem. It's the drive and the attitude that's been Tuka's problem. Nobody has ever doubted his technical ability. It's just when you get him flustered, you get him heated in the playoffs, that's when he lets up four or five goals. So, you know, it's good to see him playing well and getting Boston out the gate pretty well. Yeah. And then in the North Division, what I saw this week from watching is this is also another competitive division overall, but it looks pretty top heavy to me. And overall, I think that Vancouver losing Markstrom is a bigger deal than Canucks fans are admitting. Flames torched Vancouver last night and Markstrom stood on his head and looked incredible and clearly like the better goalie over Demko. And I don't I think people are still riding off of Vancouver's success last year. But to me, Demko is still an unproven goaltender. I know they have talent, but I really am questioning that move overall. And I think Calgary is getting overlooked a little bit with how good Markstrom is. Yeah, I got to be honest. I really thought that uh, Vancouver would come out and play better with all that young talent. Holtby had a pretty, uh, you know, he's played two games as well. For Vancouver, three goals against average, not going to cut it. They're going to have to do better. We'll see. I think that they've got a little bit of time to turn it around. It's not quite time to hit the panic button yet, but if they don't get this turned around in four or five games, it's officially panic time in Vancouver. Yeah, and what we're seeing from the Maple Leafs is what we're all expecting. High-scoring offense, Tavares lightening it up, Matthews lightening it up. Marner lightening it up. But to me, what's been surprising is their defense has actually played surprisingly well. 
And we haven't seen that a lot from Toronto. If they can muster up a middle-of-the-road defense with a good penalty kill and that offense, they're going to be a dangerous team, especially in the playoffs. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. Moving out west, you know, it's kind of as we thought it would be. Vegas has really got a two-point lead there over the Blues and the Wild. The Wild are doing a little bit better than I thought they would. Looks like Colorado kind of sputtering. They've only played two games, a one-and-one record. But uh, Arizona, the Ducks are kind of right in there too. But um, I think there's going to be a lot of fight for that third playoff spot there in the west. Yeah. One team that I was wrong about was the Kings. They've definitely gotten off to a slow start. I had picked them to make a surprise run to the playoffs, but if they continue down their same trajectory, it's not going to happen. With the shortened season, they're going to have to play better than that. And Jonathan Quick needs to be able to figure it out because a 880 save percentage isn't going to do it. No, for sure. It's going to have to get better than that. They're going to have a long year if that keeps up, for sure. John Gibson for the Ducks. Still don't think he gets enough credit. He single-handedly won Anaheim some games this year. He's a tremendous goaltender, and because of him alone, the Ducks can remain competitive in this division, but we'll see how Cam Fowler and those boys play, see if they can sustain it and you know give enough offense and play decent enough defense to not have Gibson have to make 40 saves a game to win. That's right. That's right. I think it's going to have to take a little bit of pressure off of them, but we'll see. I think that they're going to have to get a little more scoring out of some of those young forwards to, to be relevant, I'm afraid, but it could happen. So the last division, let's touch on the central. We have the Lightning rolling. We talked about them a little bit earlier. They're going to be a force, easily the favorite in this division. One team that's surprising me a little bit is the Panthers. I didn't pick them to make the playoffs, but they've seemed quite formidable. Obviously, Joel Quenville is a hell of a coach. So if they can get decent goaltending, they definitely have a shot. Aaron Ekblad, tremendous defenseman overall. They're a dangerous team. I'm not sold that they're going to make the playoffs, but they could make the division very interesting. The Hurricanes also look unstoppable. Vincent Trocek is becoming one of the best goal scorers in the league on that line with Sebastian Ajo. They're a pretty lethal team overall. Mrazic can be shaky at times, but they have so much talent on that roster. I expect them to continue having success in this division. For sure. I agree. I think the couple of things that stick out to me in the uh, Central right now is that one, Tampa has only played two games and they have a plus seven goal differential, which is a lot. And the other thing is Dallas has not even gotten to play yet with COVID issues. So hopefully they get to get their season kicked off. Um, the Blackhawks are 0-3. Mm, not good. Not good. It may be another long year in Chicago. I'm afraid but uh you know like you said carolina's playing good nashville's two and one detroit's even got a win in there one and two so who knows yeah this division doesn't have the talent like the north and the east division has but there are some decent teams they're pretty top heavy with the lightning and the hurricanes and the predators overall have been playing well my concern with the predators always is can they muster up enough offense that's going to be the question yeah, for sure, for sure. And you said that, and you didn't even mention the team that made it to the cup final last year in Dallas, so. Yeah, well, it's because I haven't seen Dallas play much this year, but they should be able to repeat their performance again. They do have a great roster overall, but Jamie, Ben, and Sagan are getting up there in age. You know, they're almost out of their prime, maybe not quite, but they really have one or two years left in this window, so. We'll see how they come out and play this year. Miro Heskinen is going to be a true Norris candidate for a long time there in Dallas. So they got some good young core defensemen, but you're right. They're going to have to revamp that scoring. Yeah, they got a little work to do. So another thing we're going to do this week, we're going to do a little player spotlight, talk about some good performances from the first week. Dalton, what's your number one player spotlight? 
So I chose this player because I really want to go on a rant about this. And I tried to preface this earlier when we began the segment. But my first player spotlight, I'm going to give it to Matt Murray. You know, he made 40 saves against the Toronto Maple Leafs, who have probably the best offense in the NHL. He ended up with a 925 save percentage and only allowed three goals. He has absolutely stood on his head for the Senators. This is a very bad team he's on. And he is the only reason they won or they split their series with Toronto. And even Senators fans are like, I can't believe the Pens passed on him. I don't know why the Penguins gave up on a two-time Stanley Cup champion goaltender. If Murray has his confidence back, I think he's a top five goaltender in the NHL. He might single-handedly carry the Senators to maybe a 500 record if he continues to play as hot as he had. And then you see the Penguins who have Tristan Jari, who's already getting benched for Casey DeSmith. DeSmith is no starting goaltender by any means. And even DeSmith allowed three goals and a win over Washington. The goaltending situation in Pittsburgh might snub them out of a playoff spot. And if they do, that's Jim Rutherford's ass, and it might be time for a change. We'll see. I really thought that was a terrible move. I will continue to rant about this. I just I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I didn't really understand it. I know they let Mark Andre through walk just so they could give Matt Murray the keys to the kingdom. You're right. They're going to have to figure some stuff out with Jari, but uh, good for him that he's playing good. And looks like he's got a little bit of a swagger back there in Ottawa. My first player spotlight of the week, I'm going to give it to Simeon Varlamov of the Islanders. Dalton, tell me if this stat line's good. Two starts, two shutouts. Is that good? Pretty Is good. that good? Pretty he good. blanked the Rangers last Wednesday night and then beat Boston this weekend, one to nothing. Two stars, two shutouts. I'll take that every time. Absolutely. My next player profile, I'm going to give it to the captain of the best offense in the NHL, John Tavares. Three goals, three assists to start the season. He's on an absolute heater. He's been a difference baker for the Maple Leafs. They're such a star-studded roster, but Tavares has always been a guy that deserves tremendous respect, and he's one of the classiest players in the NHL. That's fair. That's fair. I got nothing against Johnny T. I know a lot of Islander fans hate him, but I mean, you can never blame a guy from going home. So uh, my second spot this week goes to Kirill Kaprasov for the Wild. He's a rookie, and he's got four points in his first two games, and it's really helping those Wild come out and do a little bit better expectation-wise than was originally set for him. So good on him. Let's see if he can keep it up. Okay. My last player spotlight, I'm going to give it to Jeff Petrie, Montreal defenseman. So he's been a real difference maker for Montreal's defense. You know, he's playing with Shea Weber, obviously, but he started out the season with two goals, three assists, five points, and a plus or minus of three for a defenseman. So overall, for a guy that no one really talks about or knows anything about, he's really off to a hot start. Yeah, Petrie never really gets a lot of love on that defense in that blue line. Um, obviously had PK there for a long time and then uh, turn it right over into Shea Weber. So Petrie is a good shutdown defenseman, really lets that other partner go after and get some goals and go after some offense. But Petrie is kind of an unsung hero. Good to see him kind of get that plus minus up. Uh, my last player spotlight of the week, I got to give it to McDavid. Had a four-point game against Vancouver on the 14th, just on another level, man. He and Dreisaitl were just crushing it the Oilers have got to get it going though they're one and two and um, may not sound like much but you don't want to fall back in this division with such few games so he can't do everything but it looks like he's gonna have to try well the fact that they lost Mike Smith already to the IR and they have to rely on Miko Koskinen could doom them overall Koskinen's been a very shaky goaltender and if Mike Smith can't get back healthy and the Oilers 
roster, they might be in trouble, Zach. I know it's early to say that, but they were really banking on Mike Smith. And it's the same thing every single year for the Oilers. They can't seem to get a good goaltender. You're right. And it's it kind of stinks that they're this far down, this far early. But you know what? I did not have them in the playoffs. So it's kind of making me look smart. That'll probably be, they'll probably win the president's trophy now. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. So let's end our hockey segment with our panic meters. So I want to do this every single week. Zach, as a Rangers fan, from what you've seen so far, on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at with the Rangers? And what have you seen overall? Encouraged? Are you discouraged? Where are you at with your fandom? Well, first night, they got shut out 4 to nothing by the Islanders, and I thought the world was going to end, or so they say. Um, but I'm, I'm more of those people. Give me five or six games. Give me a bigger sample size. And then they proved me right on Saturday, beating the Islanders 5 to nothing. Um, they never play the Islanders well for whatever reason. They just always struggle against them. But, um, you know, we'll see. I think uh, Alex Lafreniere has had a little bit of a rude awakening. He hasn't quite had an impact yet, but uh, they're playing the Devils tonight and currently losing 42. So we'll see. I'm not going to hit the panic button yet. Mine's still, my panic button's still on two. So if they get to where they're 6 and 11, 6 and 12, then we, you know, then maybe start to panic. But I'm good right now. What about you? How's the Penguins meter? Penguins meter right now is at a four. And the reason why I have it there is because of goaltending. That's really the big issue. What's going to help the Penguins? They have Kasperi Kapanen coming back. He's supposed to join the top line with Crosby and Gensel. Should be pretty lethal. The Penguins obviously gave up a lot to Toronto for Kapanen. But I do think that Sidney Crosby will be able to elevate his game. And my other huge concern right now is Evgeny Malkin's play. He's been non-existent through these first three games. So if he doesn't get it going and that second line flames out, the Penguins will be in a little bit of trouble. But I am a little bit encouraged by the Penguins' defensive performance against the Capitals. Jim Rutherford's obviously spent a lot of assets to kind of retool that defense with Latang, Dumoulin, Marino playing well, but they did lose Matheson, who was supposed to be, you know, our number three guy from Florida, but he's going to, now he's on long-term injured reserve. So things are just going to need some of these young guys to step up. And if the goaltending can't figure it out, it could be a long season. For sure. For sure. Yeah. They got to get it tightened up and, and, um, Hey, it's hockey season though, buddy. I'm glad we got it back and I'm glad I get to panic a little bit now. So I'm excited. I should have set my bar a little bit higher knowing that we got swept by Philly, our arch rivals. I can't stand the Flyers, so pretty tough start to the year, but getting a win over Washington certainly helps. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Guys, keep rocking and rolling. Make sure to send us a like, send us a tweet, send us a message or something that you think we could do better or what you like. Leave us comments, send us a carrier pigeon, whatever you want to do. Just get in touch with us and uh, keep rocking and rolling here with us on Calling My Shots. Just remember this. If this episode gets 100 downloads, Zach will post a video of him doing CrossFit in a headband. <laughs> <laughs> so we all we all want to see this so 100 downloads that's the goal if you'd <laughs> like to support our show our link is patreon.com slash calling my shots you'll see an ugly ass picture of a browns logo because i'm true to my fans it pains me to do it but that's what you'll see and if you want to interact with us the best platform to reach us at is our twitter page and the handle is at caller shots that's right guys have a good week and this has been calling my shots, shots.